Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Berasli. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? That's the question a reporter posed to U.S. President Donald Trump at a recent White House press conference. The answer should have been a resounding yes, but Trump had a different response. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. For the past year, Trump has repeatedly cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election and his willingness to accept the results. President Trump is deepening the threat of a constitutional crisis after the November election. Indeed, given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And this is something that uh, I don't think we ever had to ponder could be a possibility, I think, until recent years. This has further intensified the polarization that has increasingly defined American politics in recent years. Now, many fear a drawn-out dispute over the election results. On the night of November 3rd, there's a very strong chance we'll all go to bed not knowing who won the presidential race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden if the contest is not a blowout. What could such a dispute look like? And what might it mean for the future of American democracy? This meeting is being recorded. Here to help us answer these questions is Richard Pildes. We're super scared, Rick. <laughs> you and uh, about 80% of the country. Richard is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University and the co-author of The Law of Democracy, Legal Structure of the Political Process. Okay, so let's get started. Great. He joins us from New York to discuss. Rick, I want to start with a typical scenario. How does the U.S. Constitution describe the process for a presidential transition from Election Day in November to Inauguration Day in January? The key dates in the presidential election calendar uh, are set both by the Constitution and by one major federal statute. It's called the Electoral Count Act. So the first two key dates uh, are in the Electoral Count Act. That governs the Electoral College. And the really key date there is December 14th, when the electors have to vote. The Constitution specifies that the term of the president ends on January 20th, regardless of any other circumstance. The term of the vice president ends there as well. So Congress on January 6th receives the votes from the Electoral College. If there are any disputes about those votes, Congress, in counting them, uh, has the power to decide not to count the vote from a state or to choose if there are two slates of electors from a state. Uh, and Congress has to resolve that process. We have to have a winner, a majority winner in the Electoral College by the time the transition takes place with the inauguration on January 20th. We usually have a good idea of who the next president will be shortly after the polls close on Election Day. But that hasn't always been the case. From NBC News, Decision 2000, Election Month. Good evening, everyone. It was not a false promise when we told you yesterday and the day before and all last week this promises to be one of the closest races in American presidential history. It is shaping up as just that tonight. In the 2000 race between Democrat Al Gore and Republican George W. Bush, 
a dispute over ballot counting in the key state of Florida dragged on for weeks. The presidential race still hotter than a Laredo parking lot, 246 to 242, Bush over Gore, with 270 needed to win. Polls in six new states have just closed, and the lead story at this hour is the state of Florida is too close to call. The state Bush was declared the winner, and Gore conceded. Then more votes were counted, and Bush's lead narrowed to the point that a machine recount became mandatory under Florida law. But a flawed ballot design cast doubt on the machine counting process, so Gore requested a manual recount. This protest will continue until there is a revote in Eventually, the Florida Supreme Court ordered a full recount of unclear ballots in all of the state's 67 counties. Bush appealed, and the case headed to the Supreme Court, which made two key decisions. First, the recount as it was being conducted was unconstitutional. Second, time had run out to fix the problem. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. The recount was halted. Bush was declared the winner in Florida and became the next U.S. president. But the decision was highly controversial. The most contentious partisan issue any country faces is a disputed election for the chief executive of the country. And any institution that becomes a decisive player in resolving that dispute, uh, particularly if the institution is divided, as the Supreme Court was, five to four, almost inevitably will be viewed by the losing side of the country as having acted for partisan reasons. I think that just is the reality that comes with the territory. There were many arguments back in 2000 that the court should have stayed out. Half the country uh, certainly was very disappointed with that ruling. There's a significant portion of Democrats who still don't forgive the court for that. But even so, uh, the temperature of the country back in 2000 was so much less heated than it is now. I think if the Supreme Court did something similar today or any institution that plays a key role in resolving a disputed election here is going to come under tremendous attack from the losing side. Now the U.S. may be headed towards another disputed election. But this time around, the situation is far more complicated. As Rick notes, the country is a lot more divided. And the Trump administration and the Republican Party are already trying to delegitimize the results. Many officials, including former President Barack Obama, are even warning about voter suppression. There are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws. Here again, the Supreme Court has played a role. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Voting Rights Act. It prohibits racial discrimination in voting. At times, history and fate meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. Yet in 2013, the Supreme Court's Shelby County versus Holder decision significantly weakened the legislation. 
The decision invalidating a section of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 deeply divided the justices, but it rested on a simple premise. As Chief Justice John Roberts said, nearly 50 years later, things have changed dramatically. This decision represents a serious setback for voting rights and has the potential to negatively affect millions of Americans across the country. Many civil rights groups have directly tied the recent rise in voting restrictions to this ruling. But Rick isn't convinced it applies to the upcoming election. Instead, he places the blame for recent electoral disputes squarely on polarization. Well, so Shelby County dealt with a part of the Voting Rights Act, the part that applied only to certain parts of the country, primarily the South. The nationwide provisions of the Voting Rights Act are still intact and weren't affected by the Shelby County decision. So what Shelby County meant was that in these parts of the country that before the court's decision couldn't make changes to their voting practices without getting federal government approval, which mainly meant getting approval from the Department of Justice, um, those states now can make changes to their voting practices without having to get federal government approval before those changes go, can go into effect. But in this election, because of the virus, uh, many of the big issues have been how should the election system be changed to take account of the virus and voting under the conditions of the virus? You know, should we have no excuse absentee voting? When do absentee ballots have to come in? Should the date be changed? Normally, if it's election day in a state, should it be pushed back three or four or five days? And Shelby County doesn't apply, or Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that was struck down in Shelby County, only applied to changes that states made in their election practice. So if you were challenging the state for failing to make a change, that wasn't covered by this part of the statute at all. Um, you would have to do what you have to do today, which is go into court and argue that the change violates federal law or is unconstitutional. The disputes we've been having over the last decade about changes to voting practices or voting practices are a product of partisan politics, uh, which have taken place across different states and different regions of the country. You know, we have issues in Wisconsin, issues in Pennsylvania, issues in Michigan, issues in Ohio, and none of those states were covered by this part of the Voting Rights Act. So it's a mistake to think uh, a particular, let's say, uh, let's say there's a voter identification law that has particularly difficult requirements for the documents you have to show to have a valid identification. If that law was enacted outside of the South, as a number of these laws have been, this part of the Voting Rights Act would have had nothing to do with it. So uh, I think it's a mistake to think that that this part of the Voting Rights Act was sort of an all-purpose kind of comprehensive protection for the right to vote. It only protected changes to election laws and only in the parts of the country that had been specifically uh, picked out by Congress in earlier uh, decades. Staying on the topic of voter suppression, though, there are some pretty concerning examples of it today. Do you think voter suppression poses a genuine threat to the integrity of this election? Well, I think the perception of voter suppression, you know, certainly plays a, a role in whether people are prepared to accept the outcome of the election as legitimate. You know, one of the very troubling things about our moment is that 
25% of Republicans and Democrats or Biden and Trump supporters report today in polling surveys that the only way their candidate can lose the election is if the election is rigged. So that's baked in even before we get to election day. So perceptions about the process being rigged are very dangerous. They are stoked uh, at our moment by politicians, including some of the candidates running. But I don't want to see a crooked election. This election will be the most rigged election in history. Whether particular measures are or are not suppressive, uh, we, we can get into debates about you know, particular kinds of issues. But you know, here are a few important things to keep in mind, and, and I think this isn't stressed enough, and this goes a little bit to the anxieties people have about the election. We have actually made enormous changes for this fall that often kind of get left behind in these discussions about a particular issue that's before a court right now and dominates the headlines in the paper. So think back to when this pandemic first broke and we started worrying about the fall election. The huge issue at that time was whether we were going to have mail-in voting accessible to most voters. Now, that issue uh, has been settled in favor of the voters, and it was actually settled with a lot less controversy than people might think. In 45 states for this election, every voter can cast a mail-in ballot if they choose to. Uh, Number two, states have expanded opportunities for early voting. Uh, So there are some states, uh, Kentucky and South Carolina are two of them, that didn't permit early voting at all before this election. But because of the pandemic, they now permit, in in the case of Kentucky, three weeks of early voting. South Carolina permits one month of early voting. In a state like Texas, which has been the source of, of some of this controversy about voting practices and suppression and the like, One of the things the Republican governor, Governor Abbott, did there by executive order is he expanded early voting in Texas by six days. And in a place like Texas, even as we speak, more than 40 percent of the vote that was cast in 2016 has already been cast. And it's probably even higher than that because that statistic is, is from a day or two ago. So in other words, we are already seeing tremendous uptake by voters of the options, the expanded options that have been provided, sometimes through legislative action, sometimes through executive decision by governors or secretaries of state, sometimes by court order, but really dramatically expanded access to take uh, account of the stresses uh, the pandemic puts on, on voters and on the system. And we certainly look right now to be heading towards the highest turnout election we've had since 1908, people seem to believe at this point, given how much of the vote has been cast already. We'll be right back. If you're getting a lot out of the important ideas shared on our podcast, there's another show we've been listening to that we think you'll love. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains, produced by the University of Chicago, brings you engaging stories about the leading academic research and pivotal scientific breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. As Rick notes, 
States have provided voters with a lot more options to cast their ballots this year, and people are taking advantage of them. Turnout is not just up a bit or up double from last cycle. It is now four times the turnout at this point in 2016. What you're looking at is a whopping 29.6 million early votes in now. Early voting figures are so extraordinary, in fact, that many are predicting the highest voter turnout in nearly a century. Historic voter turnout keeps getting even bigger. Think about this in 2016, about 130 million voted at this pace. We could be looking at 150, 160 million numbers we haven't seen before. But that hasn't stopped some elected officials from enacting practices that make it more difficult for certain people to vote. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott did extend early voting by a week and was sued by fellow Republicans for doing so. But then he subsequently restricted the number of ballot drop-off locations to just one per county. This morning, Texas voters suing to overturn an order from the Republican governor restricting the number of ballot drop boxes in each of the state's counties to just one. One box per county. Those drop-off locations are for people who want to drop off their ballots in person instead of mailing them in. One of those voters who filed suit is from Cyprus. That man among a growing number of critics who call Governor Abbott's order voter suppression. And Republicans have repeatedly attacked universal mail-in voting, citing baseless fears over large-scale voter fraud. President Trump tonight, after floating the idea of delaying the November election that he does not have the power to do, is renewing his attacks on mail-in voting. Despite no evidence, it leads to widespread voter fraud. Now, we have not seen historically uh, any kind of coordinated national voter fraud effort uh, in a major election, uh, whether it's by mail or, or otherwise. You touched on mail-in voting, and you have actually criticized the media for failing to underscore that Republicans, including Trump and Mike Pence, decry universal mail-in voting while they actually endorse absentee voting. Why is this distinction so important? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I may be alone in kind of you know trying to uh, drive home this point. Uh, I'm not sure, but. There's been a lot of confusion. There was over the months in which this fight was taking place and all the political rhetoric uh, was um, occurring about exactly what was being talked about. And I thought uh, the issues that the president and the vice president and others in the Republican leadership were harping on were always a sideshow because what they focused on, and they said this very clearly many, many times, um, although, as, I, as you said, I don't think the media ever picked up on this, the criticism was of what the president called universal mail in voting. Again, absentee voting is great. You request, I'm an absentee voter because I requested, I got, and then I sent in my vote. So that works out very well. That's what we've had. But now they want to send in millions and millions of ballots. And you see what's happening. They're being lost. They're being discarded. They're finding them in piles. It's going to be a catastrophe. And what that involves is the state sending out ballots to everyone on the voter rolls. And that's different from what was really at issue and was always at issue for this election, which is whether we were gonna expand the opportunities for what's called no excuse absentee voting. And the difference is with absentee voting, you the voter have to request receiving the absentee ballot. And 
that was always going to be the main form. If we had mail-in voting for this fall, that was always going to be the main form it took. Uh, and so I thought the media made a mistake by not, you know, really kind of locking the president in and other critics of universal mail-in voting to their support for absentee voting. There are only four states that expanded to this universal mail-in voting uh, option for this fall. That's Vermont, New Jersey, Nevada, and Montana. And the Republican Party has been litigating in those states to try to stop that. They're not going to succeed. They haven't succeeded uh, yet. And, and that's not going to change at this point. It's too late. But that's not where the action was. The action was in all these other states that previously only let people vote absentee if they had a very specific reason, like they were going to be away or they were, they were sick or something like that. And I was hoping we could generate more consensus that that was an acceptable form of voting and just leave to the side the more minor dispute uh, about mail-in voting, which is all about universal mail-in voting, which really only involves uh, these, uh, these four states for the, for the first time. I want to talk about counting absentee ballots and mail-in ballots. States vary on when the timeline of when that counting can start and when it ends, and it could affect the election's perceived legitimacy. Can you talk a little bit more about this challenge? Yes, I'd love to talk about that challenge because it's one of the issues that bothers me the most. And I think actually, uh, although it sounds like a sort of technical administrative issue, really could become the issue that causes tremendous turmoil uh, about the election. So we're in a situation in which many states, which are used to having about 5% of the vote cast absentee, are going to be facing vast increases in the volume of absentee ballots they get. And this could mean 40% of the vote is cast absentee. Uh, in a state like Pennsylvania, even as we speak, more than 3 million absentee ballots have been requested more than 1 million of those have already been returned. So Pennsylvania is going to face a situation in which it has to process and count perhaps, let's roughly say, 2 million absentee ballots. Now, many of the laws in states about the processing of these absentee ballots were written for the world in which only 5% of the vote was cast absentee and not this kind of volume. And a lot of states have been very much on top of this and have changed their laws to deal with the reality that their election officials are gonna face this fall. And states vary enormously in when they allow election officials to start processing the absentee ballots. Now, what does processing mean? It doesn't mean actually counting them. It means doing everything necessary to get them ready to be counted. And it takes a certain amount of time with the absentee ballots. It depends on the state law and what they have to do to process, but they have to look at the ballot envelope and make sure all the procedural requirements voters have to meet in that state to make the ballot valid have been complied with. The ballot has to be removed from the envelope. In many states, uh, there are two envelopes involved. You put your ballot in what's called a secrecy sleeve, and then you put that ballot inside the envelope that gets returned. So the state officials have to open two envelopes. They have to kind of make sure the ballots are flattened out so the machines can read them and not get jammed. Now, you know, these sound like trivial things, 
but you you add you know a certain amount of time up over two million ballots, and you're suddenly looking at a lot of time. I have been arguing since, you know, honestly, since March 20th, I first started writing about this issue, that states need to give their election officials the power to process these ballots as early as possible. Pennsylvania has refused to do that. Pennsylvania, which many people view as probably the most critical state in this election, big state, high volume of absentee ballots, far greater than anything the state has confronted before. So far, and we're at the midnight hour, has refused to change their law to allow their election officials who are begging to be able to do this, to start processing the absentee ballots sooner than election day, which is what the current law provides. It's going to be a nightmare. The election officials are going to be under tremendous pressure. If the election turns on Pennsylvania or a couple of other states that don't process very early, that just opens the door for a dragged out process. And my view on this, you know, is that the media can tell voters all it wants that we have to be patient about waiting for an outcome, and they should tell us that. But the reality in the political kind of climate we're in is that if, if one candidate is ahead in these states when the numbers are first released on election night that don't include the absentee ballots or don't include a significant percentage of them, and the way things are laying out, uh, it's realistic to think that candidate is likely to be President Trump in some of these states. And then sort of as these absentee ballots start being counted, that lead begins to erode day by day, but it takes five or six days to get to a final tabulation of the absentee ballots. I just think we're gonna be in, in an explosive situation. There's one more possible scenario. If the Electoral College doesn't deliver a majority to either candidate, the job goes to the House of Representatives. This has happened only three times, all in the 19th century. If it happens this time, we might see the party start playing constitutional hardball, which the journalist Paul Rosenberg defines as taking actions that a judge might let you get away with but your mother never would. I want to talk about what happens if neither candidate gets a majority in the Electoral College, and the issue goes to the House of Representatives. In such an extreme situation, what sort of constitutional hardball might we see? Yes. So this scenario is, uh, to be honest, one of the ones I think is least likely. Um, It's not the one that, that keeps me up at night. Um, And the reason is that, as you said, this sort of fail-safe mechanism comes into play only if no candidate gets a majority of the vote in the Electoral College. If no one gets a majority of the Electoral College vote, then we do have this fail-safe mechanism. It's the newly elected House, which takes office on January 3rd. They would be required to, to choose a president which is what they would be doing from the top three vote getters in the electoral college. And the mechanism set out in the constitution is that each delegation in Congress gets one vote. So California gets one vote, Wyoming gets one vote. Uh, And so the question is, you know, what is the balance of power between Republicans and Democrats within each state delegation after the election this fall? Right now, Republicans control 26 of the delegations in Congress so if we ended up in this 
very, very unlikely scenario, and we were looking at it today, the Republicans would have the the whip hand in that process in the House. Uh, now, you know, there are hardball maneuvers um, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats could try to employ to kind of change that situation. But I, I think we're getting, you know, into really remote scenarios. Rick, I want to conclude by asking about the broader implications of what we've just been talking about. Our democracy is sustained not only by laws and institutions, but very much so by norms and precedents. Trump and the GOP have violated or essentially chipped away at both. And now the Democrats are talking about fighting fire with fire. Hillary Clinton recently told Joe Biden not to concede if the race is close. Will this be the new normal in U.S. electoral politics? That's a very uh, sort of profound and, and troubling and, uh, and real question to be asking. I think many of us have been stunned to see the extent to which various kind of norms and principles and traditions, I don't even like calling them norms because I think of them as sort of fundamental principles of government, of governance and of government that may not be you know, written into the law, but they're really central to making the system work. No, no democratic system, no constitutional system can fully specify through law all of the constraints and the restraints and the principles that, that are inevitably necessary to sustain a democratic system. And it takes a long time to build those norms and traditions and principles up, and it takes a lot shorter time to bring them crashing down. You know, once one side does it, it's very hard for the other side to resist. And, you know, one of these traditions, principles, norms of governance uh, get uh, kind of blown through, and then another one gets blown through in response. That's a terrible downward spiral. It's very hard to know how to stop that slide down. It often takes one side kind of unilaterally deciding to do that, but, it, you know, it has to be sustained. I think the Supreme Court, you know, is in the midst of, of the crosshairs from all of these traditions that have been broken down one step by one step by one step to bring us to where we are today. And it's very troubling. And I don't think there's any simple solution. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you know, I have some magic wand I can wave uh, that's going to restore those traditions, norms, fundamental principles of how government should operate, the restraints and constraints that people should accept as part of the role of holding office. It's a troubling situation. There's just no question about it. Rick, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a treat. That was Richard Pildes. He is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University and the co-author of The Law of Democracy, Legal Structure of the Political Process. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.